Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, it is me, your bruiser, Holden McNeely, Jake Von Home. Jake Von Home, please. That's right, E.T. heads. We're talking about all of your favorite E.T. characters. I'm talking about Tickly Moot Moot, Botanicus, Senator Grebleeps, and of course, all of your favorite characters from the Green Planet. Oh boy, oh boy. And you best believe we're going to be talking about uh, Kralon, the albino carnivorous warlord who's E.T.'s sworn enemy. By E.T., of course, I'm talking about the alien uh, known as Zrek. Holden, of course, I'm wow. talking about Zrek. We so, had different research Don't bases. worry, E.T. fans. We're going to be talking about all of your favorite E.T. extended universe characters. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about, Jake? Well, uh, Senator Greb Leaps is the name of the uh, E.T. that was in the uh, Star Wars prequels in the Senate. Uh, Botanicus is the weird sage who uh, is the guy that's like greeting you on the E.T. ride. Um Tickly Moot Moot is another one of the uh, <laughs> uh, weird aliens from the ride. Are you about to talk about how the jazz in Star Wars is actually called jizz? Is that where we're headed? No, no. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And of course, the carnivorous albino alien who's E.T.'s sworn enemy and from a mutated tribe of uh, warlike E.T.'s is named Corel. <laughs> okay. So, And that's from uh, a unearthed sequel story pitch by the creators of E.T., Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson, called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. Interesting. Yes, I did actually was just reading up on E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears, (laughs) which is a fucking hilarious subtitle for, of course, the coming-of-age blockbuster summer hit of 1982, which is saying something because that was an insane year for films. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, This is... uh, it's amazing that even though uh, Jake has tried to fill your head with a bunch of spinoff bullshit, it is actually amazing that a, a true sequel... approved every single one of those assholes that I just <laughs> Oh, named. he's approved a lot of things, I think, in his day. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of incredible that, that this film, outside of... S- those crazy ramblings of that madman just now has remained as essentially pretty pure in its form of just being this one ama- like 
heartfelt coming-of-age film. And boy, was it weird to go back to it. I did not think I would feel so weird about the movie uh, upon a rewatch this last Sunday during the Sunday study sessions. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew $15 layer for that. I check it out. Um, But uh, yeah, I definitely walked away being like, weird. There's like this, like for like a third or like a fourth of the movie, E.T.'s just like dying or dead and all (laughs) creepy and like chalky looking. Um, there's the part where the, they get they get hammered, both E.T. and uh, the boy Elliot, uh, since they have this psychic connection. The whole psychic connection. Um, you know, I think when you think back in the movie, you think the bike ride, you think a lot of uh, adults that you barely re- see their faces ever, and they're all wearing like plastic, you know, uh, radiation suits. Or just straight that? up full on astronaut space suits in one of the most terrifying sequences I could That was uh, so witness. weird. I did not remember that though. I did not remember the full on astronaut spacesuit part until we rewatched it. I was like, weird, why are there the astronauts? Walls, like fucking zombies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah with oh their my hands God, I'm held, so arms held glad. Out. I'm so yeah. glad you're saying this because I th- I, I'm in the same boat as you. I wa- This was a VHS classic as a kid, watched it on the living room floor when I was a, a prepubescent like non-entity and watching it for the first time where I could actually even just understand the words that characters were saying I was floored there's so much bizarre imagery the kids are like nastier than I remember uh-huh. the whole through line about like uh, Elliot's family being a broken home and divorce and like uh, childhood delinquency. Which is really where, where the whole film came from. We'll get into how it was based on Spielberg's childhood and his parents' divorce. And just the fact that, like, the game Dungeons and Dragons is very important to, like, our character's story arc in this. And they're, like, arguing about plate armor and class uh, That uh, is definitely another thing that made me feel sort of my other thesis statement, which is essentially, oh, we don't have Stranger Things without E.T. I thought it was... I I always associate Stranger Things more with like the Goonies or um, children group gang, children group uh, uh, action fair like that. But actually, E.T. is Stranger Things. Eleven is E.T. Like there's so many one-to-ones on that that I didn't know. And yes, the game, just like the TV show, the game, yes, the movie, just like the TV show, starts with a D&D session in very similar fashion. Like even the way the board is set up with the different like plastic little corridors Mm -hmm. um, to create a dungeon layout on, on the table looked very similar. And it made me realize like, oh, this is kind of where a lot of that stuff came from that not just in the 80s but years and years afterwards like that that film about like a group of kids mm-hmm. and the adults don't get it and they've got to hide this secret this mm-hmm. secret special power this secret special thing and you know but and i think the miraculous thing about the film though is that even though certain things i don't even know if i'd say don't hurt hold up i would just say are bizarre in hindsight they still are able to reach that emotional le- height that 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 amazing, like, just tear jerky, just emotional moment when when Elliot says goodbye to E.T. That it was a fundamental, like, it was like necessary. I think as a kid to experience that in a theatrical way, in a filmic way, because you know, at the end of the day, it it is about children dealing with loss. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, the 
artistry on display. Everything from the just undeniable talent of the child actors, Spielberg's own ability to get those performances out of those child actors, the practical effects, which genuinely hold up. There are scenes where, yes, it's E.T. and yes, it's a puppet. But like there's just so much raw emotion and the thing is just so wet and wrinkly and presence that you can't deny it. <laughs> and it's I'm a lot of lighting not, too. It feels, yeah. We'll talk about the, all right, wet and wrinkly, but I will say, speaking of wet and wrinkly, it was a lot of fun watching. This is old man, Jake going on and on about how no CGI isn't the same and you got to have it be practical. And I agree. I'm sorry. Would it be more of it? I'm sorry. Should I have talked about how rap music don't hit like it used to? Is that, is that <laughs> yes. a better old man rant? Ice cube is better than um, Drake. And I stand by that. (laughs) Another thing that is kind of interesting is watching the movie now. uh, Yes, you have that John Williams score, which is, you know, starts out with like a tinkly little like. And then, like, by the end, it is this rushing orchestra of You know what? Uh, f- fuck it. April, g- cut to the chase. Get me just a little bit yeah. of that amazing chase music. Uh, cut to the, yeah, exactly. Pun intended. Like from the second that chase starts all the way to the tearful like uh, uh, woodwinds of the finale when they're saying goodbye. It just does not let up. Uh, but watching it now, you're like, oh, this is kind of weird. This movie is weird as fuck. There's weird imagery. There's weird tonal shifts. There's uh, weird stuff where like, you know, E.T. gets drunk and watches TV. And that means that Elliot uh, flips the fuck out in the middle of school and like makes a move on a young Erica Elaniac. <laughs> like, that's just so weird. <laughs> but the image of E.T., like, that survived is this wholesome movie, this tale of friendship. There was a s- series of commercials for, um, I believe it aired in England for the uh, Sky Network and their, like, uh, streaming platform. And it was as close to a canonical sequel of E.T. as you can imagine. And there is no weird government, guys. There is no penis breath. There is no (laughs) divorce talk. It's just uh, Henry Thomas, the actor, and E.T. just like hanging out and doing fun things together while wistful music plays. And they like celebrate Christmas and go on flying bike rides together. And this like wholesome family-friendly movie that we all collectively remember E.T. to be is not E.T. as it actually stands. E.T. is a psychic, uh, dizzying experience that really threw people for a loop because before 1982, the idea that you could do a sci-fi movie, a sci-fi premise as a family film, as a mainstream non-genre thing. Even Star Wars in its day, this was before Empire Strikes Back. This was before the Star Wars franchise. Star Wars was like this kind of a fluke. And even then, it was kind of a callback. This was set in the modern age. It involved spaceships and aliens. Um, But it was a universal story. That wasn't a pun. That wasn't a pun. (laughs) Also, the fact that Steven Spielberg focused so much on the childlike perspective. You know, the film is basically shot from three feet off the ground. Most of the adults, except for like a couple of scientists and the mom are shown covered in shadow or from the waist down. Like 
It's very yep. much a movie about the world of children from their perspective. And, you know, by the time you hit the 1990s, that's like the default. All kids entertainment is from the perspective of a kid. But it wasn't done back then. It This was an actual kind of uh, revolution in how you tell stories for children from an act from a using all the tools of cinema to plant you in their shoes. And so I think that's what made it such a unbelievable phenomenon. It was the artistry, it was the craft, and it was the genuine novelty of having both a sci-fi story for everybody and having that story planted in the perspective of a child and using everything from the camera angles to the sound design to firmly place the audience in that perspective. Yeah, I mean, Spielberg talks a lot about how he wanted to create his own kind of fantasy, a fantasy that was completely steeped in real, true, blue suburbia, and how much that that, that juxtaposition would just create this whole new type of reality for the viewer and in a really magical way right and it's like only you know yes you can go hard fantasy completely different made up world all those sorts of things there's so many things that, that are great about that but there is a certain kind of magic that Spielberg especially is such a, an amazing craftsman at when it comes to taking something fantastical like an alien from another planet and and bringing that to your house and mm-hmm. your neighborhood and the neighborhood you remember growing up in you know and, and Close Encounters all also had that magic, but this is almost more so because of the cul-de-sac childhood Americana uh, thing that at least I was very um, accustomed to growing up. I don't know how much how where where it's at nowadays, but uh, I mean yeah, the it, Americana dreamscape was so com- masterfully created for this movie that when we were watching it in the study group, Patreon.com, by the way, bonus episodes, uh, study groups, it's all amazing. It helps support the show. You should take it for me, the study group bird. It's a real fucking bitchin' time, fuckers. We smoke weed. I mean, yes, that is true. But, you know. (laughs) Thank you. Very truthful bird. Yeah, that's an honest bird. I like an honest bird. Just like an an honest film about growing up in America in the 80s uh, and and onward. Uh, So the point I was trying to get at with the Americana (laughs) was that um, while we were watching the movie in Elliot's backyard, uh, you know, E.T.'s in the shed. There's all this spooky lighting, lots of fog everywhere. And E.T. is in a cornfield. And everybody's like, what is going on? This is very clearly taking place in, like, Southern California. There's no corn. What's happening? That was filmed on a soundstage. And so for a American backyard set, Spielberg was like, fuck it. Put corn in there. Like, really <laughs> nail home how this is just every town America. Yeah, yeah, totally. I love it. I love it. And yeah, there was a lot. I have quotes and stuff coming up that'll reinforce this, but a lot of attention to natural lighting. Exactly what time of day it is. That means the light would be coming in through this window and this part of the house and only this window in this part of the house. Tons of attention to uh, just trying to nail down exactly where they are in what part of the day. And the only area that they treated with any kind of like fantasticality, I just made up a word. It's a great word. 
It's a great word. Is uh, It's also the name of my new uh, film about wizardry, and uh, that'll be coming out soon. Fantasticality, featuring Malokali, the <laughs> wizard of polka dots. Um, but what? yes, the only- First the- of all, that's not the name <laughs> of a real E.T. character. You could have used any <laughs> number of beloved Sorry. extended Yibble, universe. Yobble, the White Warrior, something like that. No, was one of I'm talking about- uh, Flute Root and Chemon Truss and Antum Tadana. <laughs> you know, E.T. The only, characters. The only room that they treated with uh, this fantastical nature was the closet in which E.T. was living and uh, for a lot of the film. And that was all to hit home that like he was the, the only his abode was the, the magical space. Everything else is intensely real and from a child's perspective. Let's get into it. That's right. We're talking E.T. the extraterrestrial. It is a 1982 American science fiction film produced and directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Melissa Matheson. It's about a space alien that was left behind on Earth who makes friends with a little boy named Elliot, along with Elliot's friends and family. And uh, Spielberg, uh, just a little background on him. I mean, I feel like, you know, the man gets his own episode eventually, probably, right? And we can't spend too much time on uh, his whole coming to coming to power uh, in Hollywood. We, we, we did a whole ass episode on Jurassic Park. One of my yes. favorite movie episodes, if I have to be honest. I'm yeah, plugging the back catalog. I'm plugging yeah, the dude, Patreon. You're plugging a lot. We're doing front-ended plugs all I know, over the place. I, listen, listen here, you little bastard in the car driving right now because you find yeah. Their voices like a calming present. I'm yeah, talking to you guy. right now. I know you've been shotgunning <laughs> the archives because we've been doing this for fucking years and you've been mm-hmm. really appreciating our constant presence in your life. Sign up for the Patreon. Come you want to do it. I know you turn it. off after the plug before the plugs start every episode. <laughs> I'm plugging now. <laughs> All right, let's Papa get back into it. Papa needs a pair of shoes. Steven Spielberg grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. His father was an electrical engineer. His mother, a concert pianist. He was just 14 when his parents got a divorce. And at 12 years old, he made his first home movie, depicting a train wreck using his toy trains. Uh, a few years after his parents' divorce, he made a film called Firelight. It was a 135-minute picture done on a budget of $500. It's about a group of scientists that investigate colored lights seen in the night sky along with the disappearance of people, animals, and other things in a small Arizona town. This served as, of course, a precursor to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which served as a precursor to E.T. Later, he made a short film called Amblin, which was good enough to earn him a deal directing for Universal, mostly for television at first, and it was the TV movie Duel in 1971 about a truck harassing a salesman in a highway road chase, which made a decent enough splash to give him bigger opportunities. And that big opportunity came with the horror thriller shark monster movie Jaws, which cemented him as one of the most sought after directors in Hollywood in the 70s. Uh, and right after, right after that came Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, which he wrote and directed. Close Encounters was actually inspired, inspired by Spielberg's childhood when he witnessed a meteor shower with his father in New Jersey at six years old. He said, Now I suddenly realized that the sky up there and the stars are worthy of closer scrutiny. It was a big career risk to make Close Encounters, and mainly it got through because of Jaws's massive success. The film ends with the UFO-obsessed Roy, who makes contact with the aliens, joining them on their spaceship. Very similar even looking to E.T. returning to the mothership at the end of that film. Uh, so after Close Encounters, Spielberg has a misfire in the action comedy 1941, big, huge budget, 
kind of this notable, his first big misstep as a director. Uh, and who'd uh, have thought also- that a comedy about World War II, not made by Mel Brooks, would have uh, <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. resonated with audiences. I mean, good on him for trying it for sure. This is the time when, you know, it's cool that he gets successful with Jaws and then is like, all right, now what risks can I take? As opposed to like, how do I capitalize on that success? It's pretty, pretty ballsy for sure. Um, after 1941, he uh, strikes up his collaboration with George Lucas on Raiders of the Lost Ark. George Lucas already flying high at this point off of Star Wars New Hope that comes out in 1977. And all the while while he's working on Raiders with George Lucas out in the desert and whatnot, he's thinking back on his parents' divorce and toying with it as the basis for a film, along with his memory of an imaginary alien friend that he made up, he made up in his way of cope as a coping mechanism. One that, according to Spielberg, acted as, quote, a friend who could be the brother he never had and a father that he didn't feel he had anymore. Then he thought back on the end of Close Encounters. What if that little creature never went back up to the ship? What if the creature was part of a foreign exchange program? What if I turned my story about divorce into a story about children, a family trying to fill the great need and creating such a reality? A divorce creates great responsibility, especially if you have siblings. We all take care of each other. What if Elliot or the kid, I hadn't dreamt up his name yet, needed to, for the first time in his life, become responsible for a life form to fill the gap in his heart? However, yeah, you want to talk about Night Skies before that, though. I do want to talk about Night Skies before that. Yeah. So while working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Spielberg was doing a ton of research into alien lore and UFO culture and all this stuff. And uh, he sends his assistant at the time, who is uh, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, now actual giant movie big shot Kathleen Kennedy, uh, to do some research on a little, well, not little known, one of the most famous encounters of the close third kind, <laughs> the Hopkinsville Goblin case. Yes, the dick-sucking goblin that lived in uh, old Johnson, Farmer Johnson's farmhouse that kept uh, going around. I think it was ended up just being that he was doing the dick-sucking. He was heavily closeted, I believe. No, no, no. The Kelly Hopkinsville encounter <laughs> was a 1959 account of a... Close encounter with uh, extraterrestrial beings uh, in Christian County, Kentucky. And the thing about it is that it involved a family living in a farmhouse being assaulted from all angles by little goobble gobbles that were causing a ruckus. They were firing guns out the windows and they swore it was true. Uh, And that idea, the idea of like this weird kind of family versus aliens thing gave birth to a movie idea that Spielberg kind of worked on for a while called Night Skies. It was written by uh, actually accomplished filmmaker John Sayles. And uh, they even got Rick Baker to do the uh, creature designs on this. And so it was this whole family of kind of monstrous kind of grays. They're spindly, they're long, they're mean, uh, but one of the things in sales script was that Buddy, the youngest of the aliens, befriends the autistic son of the farm family. And even though Spielberg kind of quits Night Skies, that seems to be the seed of the E.T. relationship that he just can't let go of. 
He also yes. talks about, yeah, he did also have an imaginary friend that helped him during his parents' divorce. So it's just, the, the I mean, it's a very childish fantasy to have this supernatural friend just kind of ease your woes. There's this like creature, this being from outside your reality kind of becomes your, your confidant and your ally and just like makes things better. That's a very human desire. A lot of Night Skies was based on studio pressure to have Spielberg produce a sequel to Close Encounters, which he was avidly against. So as a compromise, he was like, all right, I'll make this horror movie instead. And uh, when he goes back to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, he starts to have some second thoughts while working on this horror picture. He said, I might have taken leave of my senses. Throughout the production of Raiders, I was in between killing Nazis and blowing up flying wings and having Harrison Ford and all hit this high serialized adventure. I was sitting there in the middle of Tunisia, scratching my head and saying, I've got to get back to the tranquility or at least the spirituality of Close Encounters. And it was actually Harrison Ford's girlfriend at the time who pointed him in the direction of that relationship between the autistic boy and the alien in the horror uh, script Night Skies. Uh, This was Melissa Matheson, who at the time had joined Harrison Ford on the set and was a fantastic screenplay writer. Matheson was born and raised in Los Angeles and her family was close friends with the esteemed Coppola family. She even babysat for Francis Ford's kids growing up, which is weird because we just did the Nick Cage episode with a lot of ties to the Coppola family. She decided to leave her studies at UC Berkeley uh, early on to take up Francis Ford Coppola's offer to be his assistant in the film Godfather Part 2, which I think was a pretty wise fucking choice, Melissa, uh, on which uh, Coppola ends up encouraging Melissa to write a screenplay she'd wanted to adapt from a novel titled The Black Stallion, which, of course, went on, if you know anything about the history of children's films at this time especially, be- it became a massive hit. Uh, it jump-started her career, and uh, Spiel- Spielberg has massive Matheson read his Night Skies script while she's on the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and she's not a big fan, but she is into this one plot point that you mentioned before between the autistic boy and the nonviolent alien character. Matheson said, the idea of an alien creature who is benevolent, tender, emotional, and sweet, and the idea of the creature striking up a relationship with a child who came from a broken home was very affecting, and apparently it even she even uh, got her welling up, got her uh, bursting into tears. Spielberg then decides to hire Matheson to focus on that relationship in a new script. Apparently, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, th- you're about to say it. <laughs> this also meant letting Rick Baker know that they were abandoning all the work he had done and he spent over $700,000 and a ton of time on the special effects for a film that was no longer being made. Do we have any like record of oh, this? Oh, yes, like, we- you can, you can absolutely. Rick Baker has since shown the behind the scenes footage. Oh, cool. You can, or I'm sorry, photos. Of the characters, he even did like a little painting that like merged the final design with his original designs. Um, so the creation. OK, so, yes, uh, I watched a documentary that was like attached to laser discs in 1996. Where I'm getting yeah, a lot did. of my behind the scenes <laughs> information from. Hell yeah. BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. But it basically boils down to Night Skies was like too weird and violent and Spielberg didn't like the idea of aliens as an antagonistic force. Um, he's like, a, yeah, like you said, aloof in Tunisia and still is like stuck on this idea of the supernatural friend. He begs Matheson to help him out, especially after she had so much success with the Black Stallion, which also involves a troubled boy finding a non-human friend that like saves him essentially uh, to the point where he like gets Harrison Ford to personally ask on his behalf for her to join in. Um, when Spielberg... Uh, Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Uh, Matheson and uh, basically is writing the movie while Spielberg is editing Raiders of the Lost Ark. She'll work for four days on the script, come over with the pages to uh, Spielberg's little beachside editing bay, and they're just shooting ideas back and forth. Spielberg really wants a psychic angle. So Matheson thinks of the scene where uh, E.T. drinks beer and Elliot gets drunk. She claims that was the first thing that thought came to her mind, which I find bizarre. I don't know why. I just it's still a very weird scene. Um, she asks her own stepkids to uh, like, hey, what kind of things would you want an alien friend to have? And it's like them that say like healing that, you know, what is a problem a kid has is that you, you scrape your knee and you get owies and your best magic friend would help with the owies. Um all these things are happening, and after eight weeks, there's a first draft, and Spielberg loves it. Kathleen Kennedy recalls that she was at a lunch meeting at MGM uh, for Poltergeist, and Steven Spielberg ran into the commissary, script in hand, and said, this is the, first, this is the best first draft I have ever read. I want to start filming this tomorrow. Columbia was going to do it. But then instead, Columbia chose to produce Starman instead, you know, the Jeff Bridges movie. <laughs> oh, and yeah, was everybody like, knows well, we Starman and all the stuff that happened in that movie, Starman. And so <laughs> Columbia was like, well, we can't have two alien movies where we're not, we, we don't want that. I think also they weren't, they weren't exactly thrilled about the concept change. They wanted their horror film mm. that they were super into, Night Skies, and it was completely abandoned for this totally different uh, tonally script in, in every way. So yes, they put the script into turnaround. Spielberg then gives it to who he calls his mentor, uh, Sid Sheinberg at Universal, uh, he comes in with the script, a clay bust of E.T., and some concept art by Ed Vero, who has worked with Spielberg countless times. He worked on Jurassic Park. He's a legendary artist. Uh, Scheinberg approves. Now it's time to get Rick Baker back involved. Rick Baker genuinely hates that he went to all this trouble to design all these like cool monsters. And Spielberg's like, okay, hear me out. One monster, and he's <laughs> cute. And Rick Baker <laughs> said, uh, you want to make a kid's movie? Like, genuinely shocked. And this is, according to Spielberg, he responds, yeah, I'm making an old-fashioned Disney movie that will only appeal to kids, and it's probably a mistake, but that's all I'm going for, <laughs> a kid's movie. <laughs> uh, also, real quick side note, Columbia does have to, because the script's in turn, turn around via Columbia, they have to strike a deal with MCA to allow for the making of this film. Columbia ends up getting 5% of the film's net profits, and the president at the time would later lament that in 1982, they, quote, made more on that picture than we did on any of our films. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? 5% and they still like made a killing over all their other movies. That's how successful this movie was. So with Baker 
out, Spielberg then turns to Carlo Rambaldi, who worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Rambaldi was born... Mm-hmm. Were you going to say... Were you going to enter... Yeah. Uh, Spielberg actually makes the offer to Stan Winston as well oh. as Rambaldi. Stan Winston, basically the other big Hollywood creature guy, if you're like a fan of this shit. Um, and they... Uh, both contributed uh, designs for the alien. Uh, Spielberg keeps adding requests. Uh, it needs to be three feet tall. It uh, can under no circumstances look like it's just a man wearing a suit. And it needs a telescoping neck like a turtle. And eventually Spielberg settles on the art and designs that are coming back from Rambaldi's camp and they go with him. Rambaldi was born and raised in Italy and later studied painting at school where he developed a fascination with both both electromechanics as well as the skeleton and musculature of the human body. Oh, that's a really good background for a career in making fucking weird puppets. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's like completely perfect for that. His first film work was on a 1957 Italian feature that was released as The Dragon's Blood in English and was a full-time effects artist by 1963. Some of the films he worked on before Close Encounters were B-movie sci-fi and horror fairs such as Bloody Pit of Horror and Planet of the Vampires and bigger Hollywood shtick like that 1976 King Kong that we definitely covered in our series on King Kong. Carlo's daughter, Daniela Rambaldi said E.T.'s first sketch was inspired by a painting he had made in 1952 which represented women from his homeland Ferrara. They are characterized by their long necks. The painting is titled The Delta Poe Women. Uh, Definitely check it out. There's definitely major E.T. vibes going on with those ladies. And Rambaldi also also took inspiration from his pet Himalayan cat's eyes. And if you look at it, this will kind of blow your mind a little bit. The lower half was inspired by Donald Duck. And if you do look at the lower half of E.T., there's definitely some Donald Duck shit going on there. It's just like there's a waddle. There's like even kind of the E.T.'s butt kind of has that like Donald Duck little plumpiness. Rambaldi's daughter recalled her father getting a late night phone call from Spielberg, who was very unhappy with the design they had gone with on the first day of shooting the film and went and met Carlo at his art studio. Daniela said, my father looked at the storyboard and said, Steve, but I must start all over. I'll need six months at least. Steven replied, Carlo, I can give you three months. Come on, you can do it. You're a genius. My father accepted, but I guarantee you he worked day and night for those three months to deliver on time, what everyone today knows to be E.T. As he was used to doing, he sketched a first design and then a 3D 12-inch model. Uh, Daniela, his daughter, also recalls her father bringing Daniela into the lab to show her his finished model to see how a 12-year-old would react. And Daniela said, I said, Dad, he's really ugly, but I feel sorry for him. And if I ever met him in real life, I would help him for sure. Those were the exact words he wanted to hear. It was spot on. And she also claimed that, and this is my favorite fact from her little uh, dissertation or whatever you want to call it on uh, the background of all this. Uh, Daniela said, the reason E.T.'s neck was uh, protractable was because my father thought it would give him an empathetic trait. Being able to size down or size up depending on who he was interacting with. He could meet you on your level, which I thought was such a cool approach. Very, very smart. Another design influence that Spielberg points to is that that he uh, showed Rimbaldi photos of kind of playful, sad, wise men that he admired. Uh, f- pictures of people like uh, Albert Einstein, Hemingway, and p- the poet Carl Sandburg. 
mm-hmm. that kind of had this weird mix of like wisdom, but also childlike wonder and sadness uh-huh. all rolled into one. Um, Kathleen, oh, at one point, Spielberg thought that the eyes on the models were too uh, fake looking. And so he had Kennedy find a medical expert who t- can construct glass eyes for prosthetic purposes to make giant glass eyes for the E.T. models. Uh, another story Kathleen Kennedy says is that she felt that the puppets didn't work in a lot of shots uh, that they were testing, and she really felt they needed some kind of full body suit model for a couple of the like wide shots of the character or when the character was moving. And so she roped a business associate's four-year-old daughter to do a test screening in a latex suit. The girl was inconsolable and had a full tantrum because the suit was so unpleasant and uncomfortable. (laughs) Kennedy decided to just film the girl having the meltdown in the suit anyway and showed it to Spielberg, who agreed that for certain shots, a latex suit made sense. That's how we got um, 11-year-old Matthew Demerit, uh, who was undergoing physical therapy at UCLA Medical Center at the time because he would he did not have any legs and could walk around on his two hands. Um, the Universal Studios was actually seeking out people without legs for this uh, suit project um, alongside little people, uh, little Pat Bilan and Tamara Detro, who were both dwarves. Uh, and so in a lot of shots, uh, mainly if you see E.T. fall down, uh, that's Matthew Demerit in a latex suit. Um, if a lot of the shots in the forest were Tamara Detroit, I can't pronounce her name right. Detroit, Detroit, maybe. Um, there was also uh, for the hand acting, they went with a trained mime uh, whose name I can easily find in this document I made. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, Cap Caprice Roth who was present through a ton, even in shots where they had the animatronic head. A lot of times whenever uh, E.T. is like picking something up or touching Elliot, uh, that was Caprice Roth in just full arm prosthetic makeup doing stuff behind the scenes, either tucked beneath the floor or behind a table or under a robe. Even in the climactic scene where... uh, Henry Thomas Elliott is saying goodbye to E.T. He is literally standing on Caprice Roth, who is using the hands uh, Uh. below him. Uh, She was incredibly uh, important for E.T.'s performance. Um, Spielberg points out that there's a shot where E.T. is eating watermelon and he just so ever so nonchalantly picks some like schmutz off his face. And that was Caprice Roth just like ad-libbing on the spot. Tons of these very human moments in the movie were kind of just ad-libbed on the spot. Uh, And it's a credit to everybody involved that it really did resonate with audiences that much. Um, The uh, Caprice Roth, when talking about how she got cast, uh, she says it was because I have freakishly thin fingers. That's all I got. Spielberg pulled in Alan DeVoe uh, as his cinematographer. Uh, did you already mention Alan DeVoe? No, I didn't. But I the, the, the cinematography right. is very important to this movie. 
Devoe didn't have a ton of cra- I, for a second it was that other French name what was the other French name Petois whatever yeah. I was like wait a second did he already say Alan Devoe uh, no different, different guy Spielberg pulled in Alan Devoe as his cinematographer Devoe didn't have a ton of credits under his belt but one of them was the short film Amblin directed by Spielberg in 1968 I, we didn't put the two and two together but of course Amblin Entertainment Spielberg's production company that's where he got that name from that short film Spielberg uh, which is by the way like two hippies on a road trip very like late 60s fair dude Mm. uh, kind of thing. Spielberg said, I always think of Alan as a terrifically versatile cinematographer who can do anything with light and shadow. I didn't want to work with a high profile cinematographer on this. I wanted to work with someone who was a little hungry, hadn't done a theatrical feature before, was going to make an audacious first impression and was going to help bring this picture in for $10.5 million and no more than 58 shooting days. Alan was a major contribution to the project and how E.T. was handled in the film, according to Spielberg. And with as much as the practical effects were, you know, unbelievable for this film to make E.T. come to life, the lighting as well on E.T. Uh, seemed to double, triple the amount of reactions and, and emotions they could get off of the character. Spielberg said, Alan and I had decided long ago... Before we ever did any concept sketches, I didn't want to show E.T.'s face for about 25 minutes. That's the way I wrote it in the script. Yet E.T. and his friends are on the screen from the second or third shot of the picture. I didn't want to see his face until very late in the first act of the movie. And that probably gave Alan his biggest challenge. We would see him in silhouette. We would always view him in backlight, but you would never get a good look at his face until much later in the movie. I took many, many small, small units of light and many people pieces of aluminum foil to use as bounce cards. We were really able to mold light with E.T., but you couldn't do it in the master shots or the lights would show. And E.T. was really limited in movement when Alan had to make him more mysterious. It took a lot more time to light E.T. than I did to light any of the human beings in the movie, and I think Alan spent his best days and his most talented hours in giving E.T. more expressions than perhaps Carlo Rombaldi and I had envisioned, because he found by moving a light, by moving the the source of the key from half light to top light. E.T.'s 40 expressions were suddenly 80. E.T. could not only look sad, but he could look curiously sad. Not by the way we controlled E.T. mechanically, but by the way Alan shifted light. In this movie, more than most of my films in the past, lighting really supplies a lot of value. Lighting puts money on the screen. I love this. I love mm-hmm. this quote from Spielberg. Lighting puts money on the screen more than background extras or numbers of cars. I think as a director, I was more conscious of lighting on E.T. than I have ever been on any other movie before, especially where E.T. was concerned, because the lighting on E.T. was very important. I love it. Puts money on the screen because they didn't. It was a small movie. We're mm-hmm. talking about a small group of kids. And this one alien, and things get a little bit bigger in the final act with with the fucking astronauts and and the, and the science guys and the big chase and everything. But for the most part, we're dealing with a lot of small. We're we're inside this house. We're inside these little spaces, and so much of the drama comes from the lighting itself. And that's where the cinematography was just so so incredibly important to this picture. Yes, the. Casting was a difficult process as well. Spielberg talks about how he had been searching for an Elliot for six months, and they were five weeks away from initial filming. Uh, On the suggestion of a friend of his, uh, Henry Thomas was sent in, but it was last minute, and uh, young Henry Thomas, this was like maybe the second film he ever worked on, uh, entered the audition with no script, and the reading wasn't going well. Uh, 
at a sperm moment decision, Steven Spielberg said, let's do an improv. The premise is you found this creature. He's like a dog. He's your best friend. And the government is trying to take it away from you. Um, this interaction has actually been preserved for posterity. April, I'm going to need you to play a couple of seconds of young Henry Thomas just giving 110%, genuinely believing the words in his eyes. And the one of the most amazing things uh, an actor can hear is an enthusiastic Steven Spielberg at the end of all of it going, okay, kid, you got the job. <laughs> I can't take him. Well, I'm afraid I have to, son. You can't take him away, he's mine! But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says, he's my best friend. And you can't take him away! It's incredible. Thomas says that he actually had to hearken back to his own traumatic memory of seeing his own dog get attacked by another dog in front of him in order to well up the tears and the urgency in his voice. Yes. And it is incredible to see that, like, this performance gave birth from that one raw moment of on-the-spot acting. Of course, uh, every time you say Henry Thomas, it throws me off because uh, the network's own Henry Zabrowski's middle name is Thomas. And when his mom is upset with him, she goes, Henry Thomas, how dare you? So I'm always thinking about Henry. Second of all, it should be noted that Henry Thomas apparently showed up in an Indiana Jones costume for his audition. And uh, it was did not go well at first until he hit that had that improvisational moment, which was pretty hilarious. Uh, Drew Barrymore uh, was just six years old and Spielberg actually first saw her when she went into audition for Carol Ann in the film Poltergeist. However, uh, he found she was not great for that role, but perfect for the role of Gertie in uh, in uh, E.T. Supposedly, Spielberg wasn't even supposed to be at that audition. He was filling in for the director of Poltergeist who just had uh, a conflict in his schedule. Or a break? To, like, was this, I mean, was he already just a shit show? I, we got to do Poltergeist at some point because the oh, whole man. story of it is that, you know, the director was like insane and Spielberg pretty much had to make the whole movie because he was like completely out of his mind, uh, which is fantastic. Um, a story in the documentary that I just want to share is uh, Dr. Keyes, who's like the one government agent who's actually like sympathetic to E.T. and is kind of like keyed in to be like the new father figure in uh, Elliot's pun intended. life. Originally auditioned for the role of Indiana Jones, but it was a disaster because as he entered the audition space, he tripped on a lampstand and busted his ass in front of everybody. But that <laughs> apparently was so memorable that when it was time to cast uh, for E.T., it was Spielberg who was like, what was the name of that slippy sloppy guy we saw for uh, Indiana Jones? I think <laughs> he'd be good. What was his name? <laughs> <laughs> who was so that clumsy SOB? We should get him. He had a good look. So, of course, we already mentioned it before, but just to hit it home, with all these ch children as our main characters and E.T. being this, the shape, uh, the, the, the height he is, uh, the whole movie is from the viewpoint of a child throughout the film. Spielberg said the camera was always on the Fisher dolly and the lens was usually around four feet, eight inches in the air. Spielberg also said, for this and other reasons, I chose not to show faces of adults except for Mary, the mother, because I didn't really consider her an adult. I thought of her as one of the kids in that household. She was just like anybody else who could keep a secret. But I avoided showing the biology teacher, avoided showing any of the policemen. In fact, Harrison Ford is was apparently in the movie. But, oh, uh, he you, can, you can see the deleted scene. He plays the principal and it's this very intense scene. It's like fully shot with like uh, practical effects and everything. 
Uh, you don't see his face. And apparently that's the only reason why Harrison Ford agreed to it. Not because it was his wife's big movie break after the Black <laughs> Stallion. No, uh, he was like, you're not I don't have to you don't you don't have to put me in makeup. Great. I'll do it. <laughs> but in this scene, Harrison Ford delivers this insanely dark monologue about like the shittiness of a, the adult world and the compromises you have to make to thrive within it while E.T. is still getting blasted back at home because this whole school sequence with the frogs and the kiss and all this stuff is part of the psychic link. Uh, it shows E.T. lifting some uh, phone home supplies up the stairs with his telekinesis and Elliot is like going full uh, exorcist mode floating in the air while the principal is like pontificating looking out the window. And if it wasn't for, hell, I, you can barely recognize his voice. Like if it wasn't for the fact that I'm, the clip says you are watching the Harrison Ford deleted scene in E.T. I wouldn't even have known it was him. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he he uh, went on to say, uh, well, you avoided showing any of the policemen or any adult strangers until the very end of the movie when you finally were confronted with all the doctors and scientists. But until then, none. Uh, also, unlike his a lot of his other movies, he actually did no storyboards for this movie, mm-hmm. uh, except for the effects stuff, because they had to hand that into Industrial Light and Magic uh, under the supervision of effects artist D- Dennis Muren for the 45 special effects shots. They had to do those. Other than that, Spielberg didn't want to, quote, Mother the spontaneous reaction that young young children might have to a sequence, and instead, quote, winged it every day, according to him, which is pretty wild. Spielberg also talks about how Matheson, who was on set as both like a script supervisor and child wrangler and just general purpose, like helping it keep the story on track, uh, broke down every day's uh, shooting script into three by five cards that broke down each individual shot in the script. And Spielberg claims that like this really helped him kind of stay on task from shot to shot and focus as much as he can on what was in front of him instead of getting bogged down in the whole uh, production. And it really kind of shines because in behind the scenes footage, every single thing from the lighting to the camera movement, Spielberg is just keyed into what is happening at that exact moment. And also to help with shooting, it was done almost entirely in sequential order of the script so that the child actors could respond in real time to how they're supposed to be feeling within each part of the story. And if there's one thing that really will stay with you uh, if you watch behind the scenes footage is how much Spielberg is sitting with these kids and trying to help them get in tune with their emotions and what they're supposed to be feeling. He's basically like this fun camp counselor, this like weird youth pastor that also happens to need to extract millions of dollars of creative labor from these <laughs> kids. Um, you know, he'll just sit with Henry Thomas. He'll sit with Drew Barrymore and be like, okay, Henry but, Thomas. but maybe Okay, yeah, you were you're sad cuz ET is going away, but maybe you're trying to be happy sad. Maybe you're trying to like make it maybe it's more sad if you're not even showing everybody how sad you really are. Cuz you don't cuz if you go all the way sad, that means you'll know it's really true and you don't want it to be true. Like just really just getting in these kids' heads and, you know, from their perspective, E.T. is their best friend. E.T. is sick. E.T. is in trouble. E.T. is free. E.T. has to say goodbye. And so by doing it sequentially, it really just keeps the kids in their zone. Uh, Apparently, they would go out of their way to hide the fact that the puppet was a puppet in scenes. Mm. Like they, you know, the they wouldn't let the kids in the room when they were doing maintenance work on it or setting him up or breaking him down. Like when the camera was on. 
and the kids were there with this thing. It was alive and it was their best friend. That they are a family and in a neighborhood with like friends in a way that I even fantasized about as a kid because I didn't ha- really have that going on. My brother kind of had that going on more than me, but uh, it's so believable. Like you just, you, I you, mean, you Elliot just... in the beginning of the movie is like, wants to be a part of his brother's friends and yeah, they're just true. shitting. So on I definitely connected with that for yeah. sure. I know. And the whole, it's all so believable to me that they would be an actual family as a kid watching it. You know, I mean, you just would absolutely be convinced this was a fucking documentary almost, you know, I mean, it's just so well done in those ways. And that's that's why I love, you know, uh, all the all the stuff that I read about with them really creating this realistic space with lighting and things like that to give you full on straight up suburbia uh, and and adding that magical stuff. I mean, it really did make it. I think I'm sure we were all like, yeah, ET's real growing up until a certain age. You know, yeah. <laughs> like we're all just completely convinced. Uh, the film was edited by Carol Littleton, who had only done a few movies before this one, including Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat. And her next film would actually be the classic Big Chill. So uh, if you know that movie, you wouldn't be surprised that Spielberg said she's one of the few directors I know who cuts to music. And she selected some fantastic music for our temp tracks to cut to. She's a genius at rhythm, at a frame off and adding a frame here or a frame there. She's just one of the best experiences I've had in in the editing room. And uh, of course, the actual music was done by the legendary John Williams. It is such as, as uh, Jake said during the watch along, this is the most John Williams ass score. Uh, <laughs> like in every, mm-hmm. on every level it is, uh, you know, by this point he's already, he's already made a name for himself in Hollywood. Uh, John Williams bounced back and forth between NYC and LA throughout his childhood while honing his chops as a musician. He studied at Juilliard and then headed back to LA to work as an orchestrator on, at film studios. It wasn't until 1958, still very early uh, on um, or very uh, long, long time before uh, E.T. would come around uh, that he would get his first feature film composition. It was a movie called Daddy-O and it earned him his uh, and he got his first Oscar for his adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof in 1971. He met Steven Spielberg in 1974 who approached him to do Spielberg's first big feature film, The Sugarland Express, as well as Spielberg's second film, Jaws, which of course was uh, one of the most memorable suspense film scores of all time with its two-note Ostinato, which earned him his second Academy Award. And, uh, you know, we all associate like monsters, especially fish, uh, giant fish and sharks uh, uh, tracking someone down to kill with that bird art. Burner. And, uh, of course, after that came Close Encounters and then E.T. Oh, and, uh, you know, a little-known movie called Star Wars A New Hope around that uh, in between those times as well. John Williams spoke about how worried Spielberg was that audiences might not connect with such an odd-looking creature and compared the film's surprise success to that success to that of Star Wars with how the results far exceeded their expectations. They did not think it was going to be as incredibly successful as it was. Spielberg gave Williams a rundown of the film and then he let him go to work. And when Williams called him up to play a couple of themes on piano, including the classic piece you hear when Elliot and E.T. hit the skies on the bike, of course Spielberg was immediately pleased. There's actual footage of him 
him playing on his uh, on his piano for Spielberg. Spielberg just smiling and just like just so hyped for it. Uh, one interesting facet of the process for this film was that Williams would actually have his orchestra play the score, you know, with the movie on the giant screen, like creating, you know, d- d- uh, creating the tempo and stuff for what they're seeing. But then he turned the movie off and let them play it as a pure orchestral piece to really just hone in on that and what that was for for them. Then he put the film back on and kind of tried to create a combination of the two approaches to performing it. And it really is spectacular. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The word that always comes to mind when people are describing the E.T. soundtrack is soaring. The, The core flying theme it's all the scenes are about Elliot trying to like break away and there are things that like bring the melody back down and it just rises and rises and rises to the point where I think another part of the magic formula that made 1980s audiences go crazy for this movie is towards that big uh, set piece finale chase scene into the goodbye uh you know these are kids just riding their bikes through suburbia but it has this like operatic old Hollywood grandiose soundtrack behind him that would have been completely intoxicating to the audiences of the time. Like, you know, this, these are the same notes and chords that they associate with, with uh, epics of, of, of old school Hollywood. But the setting is the driveways and woods behind their own homes it's that's the magical recipe right and we like fiend for it now i think as uh older movie watchers you know when something like super eight or stranger things comes around i think they immediately hook people like us in because we grew up around the time of spielberg's heyday with et and you know the goonies Goonies. and all that kind of stuff we want to see that magic meets realism in everyday american life so much uh and and the score is such a huge huge part of that or even poltergeist right the the score of poltergeist has this like such a magical creepy feel to it placed in this um everyday home that unfortunately they moved the tombstones but they didn't move the bodies jake we gotta do a poltergeist episode i need i need put it in my veins i love poltergeist oh hey october's not too far away maybe we'll just uh, hold off for the spooky months uh do you have anything else about the making of the film before we get into the release and some of the um uh, you know other offshoots and things before we talk about moogie moogie 
Poopy Skin or whatever those the names of those uh, guys you were talking about earlier. Uh, Tickly Moot Moot. He's a very important character. <laughs> I can't believe how close my bullshit name was to an actual one. Holden, of the names. did you ever ride the <laughs> ET Adventure ride at Universal Studios? No. Do you want to get into that now? Well, let's talk Wait, okay. about. Let's, well, uh, just um, we'll just briefly talk about the release and stuff. But yes, I do want to talk about the ride for sure, and I want to talk about the weird thing they did twenty years after its release, where they replaced. Oh, the guys I got a guns whole thing about that. I got a whole thing right, about. Cool. That. Cool. Let me just, we'll just, the release, uh, I don't have a ton on it. The film premieres at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival closing gala. And then on June 11th, 1982, it opens in the U.S. It is a box office giant. Oh, but happy that- 40th anniversary, E.T. Maybe Yay. that's why we decided to do it. <laughs> Maybe that's why we decided to. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it, it remained a huge box office giant from June 11th until some point in October. It ran in theaters until sometime in 1983. It even surpasses Star Wars as the highest grossing movie of all time when the run was finally finished. It won four Oscars. They were all for sound and effects. And uh, even Richard Attenborough, who beat out Spielberg for best film with Gandhi, said that, <laughs> quote, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, and wonderful. I make more mundane movies, and people do actually often point to those Oscars as one of the glaring examples of how bad they get it wrong when it comes to who really should have won Best Picture. Most people believe E.T. should have definitely taken it. I mean, the compliment was uh, definitely heard because Spielberg then went on to cast him in Jurassic Park. so. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to talk about first? The 20th anniversary version or do you want to talk about the ride? Let's talk about the the CGI guns because uh, <laughs> in the <laughs> behind so the scenes uh, documentary that I watched from the 1996 laser uh, disc release, uh, Spie- Steven Spielberg on camera proclaims that one of his big regrets about the movie was that he had men with guns trying to confront unarmed children on bicycles. He says it flat out. If I had to redo something or if we ever did a reissue, I will use CGI to change it. And needless to say, in 2002, for the 20th anniversary release, that is exactly what he did. Do you remember when this weird time period, I forgot that they did it to E.T., but this is also around when they were re-releasing the Star Wars movies and Mm -hmm. fucking with them in ways that were pissing fans off and stuff. I mean, I will just say, like, if there was an alien species on the planet and the government found out about it, I'm pretty sure some guns would have been involved. I don't know. I'm sure they would have been packing a little bit of heat. So around the release of uh, Ready Player One, one of Spielberg's last movies, uh, he said, I got in trouble for doing that. When E.T. was re-released, I actually digitized five shots where E.T. went from being a puppet to a digital puppet and I replaced the gun when the FBI shows up in the van. Now they're walkie-talkies. So there's a bad version of E.T. I took my cue from Star Wars and all the digital enhancements of A New Hope that George put in. (laughs) And I went ahead because the marketing at Universal thought that we needed something to get the audience back to see the movie. And so I touched up the movie, but in those days, social media wasn't as profound as it is today. And it was just beginning, you know, a loud, eruptive, negative voice about how you could ruin your favorite childhood film by taking the guns away and putting walkie-talkie in their talkies in their hands, among other things. I will say that getting rid of the guns also adjusted the rating of E.T. from PG to G. So it might have had oh, a financial yeah. stake in doing that as well. Weird. Weird. I, I find it very it's such a fascinating. a fast moment. You don't even notice it. In 1996, 
Steven Spielberg. By the way, is it would it be him, the boy getting drunk? Wouldn't that <laughs> that didn't, it wasn't an issue? That's funny. They since uh, by the time we got to the 30th anniversary, they then got to re reissue the movie now without the uh, 20th anniversary changes. So everybody wins. But uh, Spielberg acknowledges that that was a mistake, even though oh, good. it was shocking to see him in 1996 being like, I fucking hate that there's guns in this movie. I regret it. It is one of my only regrets. I'll change it right now. Give me the fucking computer. I'll do it right now. I hate the guns in this they movie. They also did replace the word terrorist with hippie uh, on Michael's Halloween costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another one. And there was some other little, like, they added lights to the UFO. They kind of did a little tweaks here and there. They were oh, less noticeable. We didn't say this, but the original, uh, the designer of the UFO was uh, Ralph McQuarrie from Star Wars uh, concept art fame. Mm, if mm. you're a nerd and you're like, wow, Ma- Ralph McQuarrie, you're like, congratulations. I You now know this. <laughs> uh, anything else on the 20th anniversary? The ride was cool. The ride was kind of cool. I didn't get to ride it, but it looked—it was definitely something I wanted to ride when I was a kid. So there's a whole world of weird post-ET media because it was such a gigantic hit. Um, one of the weirdest things is that uh, for the storybook, uh, they got Michael Jackson to narrate it for the audio release of it. Uh, April, why don't you go ahead and uh, throw in some of that guy's creepy voice as he talks about aliens for a second. <laughs> The creature's heart light faded. He was alone. Three million light years from home. The lights of the city twinkled in the valley below the little being. The Philia's light was coming from a kitchen window at a boy named Elliot's house. The big guys playing inside made Elliot wait out front for their pizza delivery. Out back, the creature crawled into the yard and hid in a tool shed. Uh, it was produced by Quincy Jones. Just a weird, oh. just a weird thing. Very there odd. was a sequel novel released called E.T. The Green Planet. And it is a psychotropic nightmare. It takes place <laughs> directly after the movie ends with E.T. on his ship back home regretting and missing Elliot. They go through wormholes and thus time dilates. And by the time he gets back to his planet, Elliot has aged to being a teenager. The psychic link is still real and E.T. sends telepathic mini-me's across the galaxy to help him uh, get laid is what I can only assume. Like all of the Elliot scenes are about him at the pool trying to mack on this girl named Julie <laughs> and this baby mind clone E.T. fucking it up and getting into shenanigans. The uh, book describes the tiny mind clones of E.T. as dying um, and fading out of existence pathetically whenever they fail at their task. Uh, but the whole movie is filled with all these weird quotes because E.T. is talkative as fuck in this movie and most of the book is just weird jokes like uh, E.T. is trying to talk about life on Earth and he talks about how there's a creature known as Ba Skitball who is helpless to go anywhere unless you bounce him. (laughs) Earth people love him and try to take him from each other every Saturn day. I saw this on their communication screen before which I sat drinking beer as all Earth people do. I felt wonderful but later had a mysterious pain, uh, pain in my head. Um, 
This is another quote from page 18. It is the children who rule the blue planet of Earth. They are much more intelligent and sensitive than the older people and outrun them on their bicycles. Did you meet the ruler of this Earth? Said Botanicus, who is E.T.'s like weird dad figure and leader of the planet. Elliot, he rules Earth with his brother Michael, who is also called Penis Breath. Insane ha! movie, insane book. Do we mention that they they insult the the kid and the kids? One of them insults the other with the penis breath. That's yes. where I got that from. <laughs> okay. uh, the mom cannot contain her laughter, which was not in the script, but they used That's the shot, funny. the take anyway. Just a genuinely bizarre movie. Again, again, how that didn't keep it from it. How did they, so they kept penis breath in it. It, it was still turned into a G-rated movie just because they got rid of the guns? Apparently. Fascinating. <laughs> Some of the lore from the Green Planet book, which involved all sorts of weird alien characters and talking plants, uh, made it into the Universal ride, the story of which... Uh, if you've never been, E.T.'s home planet, the green planet, is dying. This is from the official operations yes. manual used at Universal Studios. All E.T.'s friends, Tickly Moot Moot, Orbidon, and Magdal are in danger. Only E.T.'s magic healing touch can save his planet and bring his friends back to life. Um, this had uh, a lot of, it was a dark ride. The You sat in a little bicycle, or if you were had motion sickness, this like spaceship car that didn't move around as much. And you kind of ran through the forest and like mannequins that looked like uh, government agents were like, hey, stop. And then you fly to E.T.'s homeworld, which is a Muppets on LSD psychotropic dreamscape that I still don't understand fully. Um, But one of the core gimmicks of the ride was that you gave your name to an attendant or a computer. And at the end of the ride... One of the E.T., I think E.T. himself would thank you by name. And so uh, supposedly they used a database of over 70,000 common names. And as you rode out of the ride, uh, E.T. would be like, thank you, Holden. Thank you, Yeah, that was was the main um, attempt by Spielberg and co and and the the designers of the ride to like make it feel personal. That's what Spielberg always said. We want I want to make this feel personal. I want this to have, you know, as much as it is like a big crazy ride at a theme park. I want this to feel and I think that was cool that on their way out ET would say goodbye to you specifically. Mm-hmm. Unless your name was Bart, only Bart's got uh goodbyes. Uh I believe. But yeah, it 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 uh that that's pretty cool. I I mean, I definitely as a kid growing up I'd always wanted to check it out for sure. Well, you know, it's, it's the only Universal Studios ride still in operation uh, to this very day that was there when the theme park first opened in Florida. Right, right, right. So you can still, you can still do it. Uh, there are plans tentatively to open a uh, clone of the ride at Universal Studios South Korea and Universal Studios Dubai Land in the near future. Um, man, b- weird that we just did Pac-Man. We all, we have to talk about the other game that almost destroyed home consoles, uh, home home console video games for good. And that would, of course, be ET on Atari. Uh, just another ridiculous attempt, you know, cash grab essentially. Kind of funny how it really was the first of many, many licensed games that would come to just be dog shit until they eventually finally started to, for the most part, put out decent licensed games in in our modern era. This should not have been a flop. 
This should have been an incredible, this should have been the thing that uh, made the Atari 2600 as ubiquitous as the Nintendo. We'd be going to Atari land at Universal Studios Japan if it wasn't for this going wrong. Because uh, Atari actually was succeeding with licensed titles, and one of their top performers was a Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, game produced by one Howard Scott Warshaw. Uh, Howard Scott Warshaw also created another incredibly popular uh, 2600 game called Yars Revenge. And so Atari got this great license for this hit movie. It was already uh, doing gangbusters in the theaters. And so they got their number one guy, the guy who already did a Spielberg adaptation game to great success to make this thing. Uh, they just didn't give him enough time <laughs> to do it. Yep. What was the actual time frame? Five weeks. He got five weeks to develop it for the Christmas 82 season. The movie was kicking ass summer 82. They needed it out by Christmas 82 to maximally get their returns. I played this game on stream, Holden, and it is so profoundly frustrating. Um, yeah. The core of the game it's almost a roguelike. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's almost a roguelike. <laughs> As E.T., you have to dodge government agents and collect all the pieces of your uh, communicator uh, and then plant it on the ground and wait for the aliens to come pick you up. Yes. The location of the pieces are randomized every time you play and you have a limited energy gauge that you can uh, you. Once you're captured, you waste energy gauge. If you're running around without finding things, you waste energy gauge. And when the energy meter goes to zero, you die. You can collect uh, square, tiny pixels, which are supposed to be Reese's Pieces. We didn't talk about Reese's Pieces. Oh, yeah. Uh, M&Ms were like, no, we don't want to be part of your freaky alien movie. So they went to Hershey's, who were doing Reese's Pieces, which wasn't doing that great. And the rest is history. Now you can still buy Reese's Pieces in your... Uh, grocery store. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. <laughs> the main obstacle in the game, besides the government agents, are these pot, these pitfalls, these holes in the ground. And it is really easy to just brush up against like one, one pixel away and still fall down the hole. You're then stuck in this hole and you're, the action button like lifts your neck, but like there's, you don't quite know how to get out of it. If you, Activate your neck magic and then hold the up button. You can float out of the hole, wasting precious energy time. But if you are in the wrong area of the hole, you'll just fall right back down it. So you're just stuck there falling and lifting, falling and lifting, falling and lifting. If you picked up Reese's Pieces, even after you die, Elliot comes in on a bicycle and like revives you. But with like a couple of seconds worth of energy. So it's worthless. <laughs> so you're just begging for death falling down holes. And even if you find any of these fucking pieces of this fucking machine, the next time you play, they're not there because it's randomized. Yeah. It, there's no plot. It has n barely anything it to do is, with the game. You're not even, I, it, it, no words can do it justice. E.T. looks bad. E.T., the environment looks horrible. The music, or there isn't even really music, right? It's just sort of like the sound effects are awful. Yeah, it's just like, beep, 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 beep. It, it is just dubious at best. If you've never seen any footage of this game, go look it up. It really, I think, is probably the worst video game ever made. It just 
everything about it is to me repulsive. And uh, also, uh, of course, this led to a giant downfall for it's, it's, it's still sold a ton of copies, by the way, which is, you know, it was a million seller or whatever. Um, uh, and uh, but at the same time, they uh, it, 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 it really got a lot of people between that and Pac-Man completely bouncing off of the Atari, feeling very, um, let's just say, shitty about uh, owning an at-home gaming console because of the types of products that were being put released. And, of course, that fabled landmine incident happened where uh, they had a ton of excess copies of E.T. that were all buried in a landmine, and it was eventually dug up. you mean landfill? Oh, sorry, landfill, yeah. Because if I stepped on a landmine and a bunch of Atari cartridges popped out, I'd <laughs> be, be relieved, awesome. quite honestly. I'd be like, oh, thank God. Oh, yes, thank God. landfill. They, they buried, um, just let's just say, buttloads of copies of E.T. in a landfill. And they actually did for the Atari documentary, I believe, is how it happened. They actually did go excavate it and uh, did find that this this to be true people most people thought this was like one of the biggest like bullshit video game myths of uh, out there but it actually was true and led to the demise of the home console uh, uh, video game industry for several years until the NES came out and completely brought it back and here we are now at PlayStation 5 and 11. If you are hankering, really hankering for an E.T. video game experience, uh, there's a Lego Dimensions expansion pack where you can run around the town of every town America with uh-huh. a little Elliot and you can go That's to the cute. spaceship and you can heal plants and whatever the fuck you do want to do. I think there's a there's sneaky yeah, sections not, where you not, have to dress ET up like a little grandma. It's just not a it's not a video game thing, and it's also not a sequel thing. Actually, uh, you know, thank God with everything Jake said about Weebledy Wop and okay. Lukey Lou and everything that that we did never did get what I'm sh- you know definitely was considered for quite some time an ET two. So if you talk to Matheson and Spielberg now, they will say up and down. Oh, we never we knew that this like you couldn't make a sequel to this movie it's such a perfect encapsulation of a moment it would just highlight how far we've fallen we would never do a sequel but there exists a story treatment written july 17 1982 called et2 nocturnal fears written by steven spielberg and melissa matheson the story begins with a second spaceship landing in the same forest where et's ship did The creatures emerge from the ship. It's a familiar silhouette and a familiar movement. The classic E.T. waddle. Our heroes from the first movie, Elliot, Michael, and Gertie, and their many friends are looking forward to the summer, but their thoughts still return to E.T. They're lonely without them. They miss him badly. In the spaceship, all of a sudden, more aliens emerge from the ship, but they're different. They're bone white and have glowing red eyes. In fact, they are all at the command of Corel, an evil, mutated, albino faction of the same civilization E.T. belongs to. E.T. was a botanist, but these monsters are ravenous carnivores. (laughs) They're searching for an extraterrestrial named Zrek, which our characters don't realize is E.T. They want to capture the alien version of Shrek. Yeah, go on. And of course, they're also looking for E.T.'s best friend, Zronke. 
A lot of bullshit <laughs> Which happens. Which rhymes with monkey. <laughs> Mary, the mom, is dating Dr. Keys from the first movie, but their relationship is straining. Uh, Elliot has a weird sense of boogity-boo thanks to his psychic leak with, uh, link with E.T. So they reactivate the uh, communicator and the aliens trap Michael... Gertie and Elliot in their spaceship and just laboriously torture them for what I can only describe as half of the movie, at which point E.T. finally arrives to save them, goes full commando and infiltrates the enemy spaceship and defeats them and rescues the kids. And then the story's over. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. It's, uh, you know, I mean, obviously that makes sense with how much money the movie made that, uh, in fact, to me, it's miraculous that a sequel never came out that super sucked. There was a giant cash grab, but you know, that's the the kind of movie that it is. I'm so happy it never happened. And since that initial deliberation, initial, you know, script and everything, Spielberg has been very uh, adamant about that never happening, a sequel never happening. So maybe we'll even get one one day, but definitely not while Spielberg is alive. The closest we got to a sequel is that Sky Channel ad from 2019 yeah. which uh-huh. uh spielberg supposedly approved of but it really is just they're just playing the hits with uh mm-hmm. just, it's just more et it's just not you, you know it's just looking at it what it is what it's about it's just not it's not a series thank god you know because i think if it was made in more modern day it would definitely would have gotten a sequel and that sequel would have had no reason for being so yeah check out read the book crazy book uh <laughs> just imagining et being made now to et yeah oh yeah uh, just everything about it is so of its time for sure it's you know or or, or watch mac and me one of the or oh, one of the many God. uh et Knock ripoff uh, films sponsored by mcdonald's uh all right i think that's all we got on et jake thank you for doing the work no one else wanted to do i mean that is unbelievable how much you know in our uh, <laughs> patron exclusive discord people were like you gotta talk about botanicus bro are you gonna talk about botanicus <laughs> It's avid. Yeah, the fandom is real. Yeah, what an interesting one, man. I'm glad we finally did this one. I mean, I love episodes about Spielberg stuff. I love episodes about stuff where you look back on it and you're like, weird. This movie's weird, but awesome and touching. And it does get there. It does find those emotional heights. And uh, if you it's haven't just watched it since you were a kid, definitely give it another look. You will For see sure. it with fresh eyes and For there sure. will be things you did not remember were in this Abs- movie. Such as penis breath. <laughs> it, it, it really is uh, so uh, of its own unique nature and and such a huge nostalgia hit for me and definitely anybody my age. That's for sure. Um, all right. Well, that's our episode on E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, we do weekly bonus episodes for $5 a month. And at $15, you can join us for the Sunday study session on Discord where we hang out. This last week, we watched E.T. It was awesome. Uh, also, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdinators ho. Twitch.tv forward slash holdinators ho. We've got streams going Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and uh, sometimes in between. And I appreciate all you Wizard the Bruiser fans popping in to say what's up. You guys are the best. Uh, All right, Jake. Hey, uh, Puppet Jared, that's my streaming channel. I do a VTuber thing. 
Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, The Cartoon Dumpster. We watch weird old bad cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and we riff on them, we make jokes, we uh, look up the weird uh, crossovers between modern media and these forgotten relics of another era. It's a fantastic time. If you're a fan of this show, I think you'll enjoy it. Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, The Cartoon Dumpster on YouTube and Twitch. Just search Puppet Jared. Hell yeah, it's an awesome stream. You guys got to check it out. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.